Hey, Nick. Hey, Nicole. <laughs> We're going to do an Ask Me Anything episode. This is covering our most recent sermon series that we are still in, Ezekiel, A Glorious Lord and a Rebellious People. And we'll be covering sermon questions from May 16th all the way to this past Sunday, which was June 27th. Mm-hmm. And we're going to work our way backwards, starting with questions from this past Sunday. And just as a reminder, we don't get to cover all of these questions um, every time. Sometimes it's because we've already addressed them in other episodes. Other times it's just because time is finite and we have to make some choices. Yeah. And I have a couple of crises going on in my life right now. And so I might not be as peppy today as usual. That's right. I'll try to um, make up for that. And, you know, Ezekiel as a book isn't really helping to be peppy. So, yeah, but that's okay. All right. So here we go. First question. Can you expand on the danger of thinking that our idol is not as bad or not as bad as someone else's? So, for example, if my idol is a clean house, I could think a clean house isn't as bad of an idol as uh, contributing to violence or injustice and then just brush it off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of two questions, right? So I think that um, sometimes your idol isn't as bad as somebody else's idol. Uh, but one of the things you have to start with is you're prone to think that way, even if it isn't true, mm-hmm. right? So if I, like, if I have an argument with my wife, I may be right and she may be wrong. That may just be the case. Right. It also may be the case that I'm much more prone to see the merits of my argument and much less prone to see the merits of hers. And that's more true the more angry I get mm-hmm. or more frustrated or whatever whatever strong emotion that makes me feel like my thoughts are clear even if they're not. It's just the nature of intense human emotion, right? So what that means is, is that for me to try to be as honest-minded as I can, I need to try to do the opposite thing and try to like really maximize her argument in my mind and what's good about it and maximize what's negative about the argument in my mind, right? And like, and how she must see it and try to, try to equalize the distortion that my fleshly mind will naturally create. Mm -hmm. And then I have to do my best to discern and evaluate like what I should do, you know, and then focus on treating her as a person instead of an object and, um, and then do my best. Right. You know, so I would just say like, because I mean, there are times where I'll have an, I will have an argument with my wife and I am more right than her. And, and that is what I discern even after I do all that. And I think in the, in the, over the long term, that's the case. And then other times it's just not. And I, and I felt just as sure. So I think, um, the issue, yes, it is the case that sometimes your idol is not as bad as another one, but still the way we navigate our own self distrust is actually the larger spiritual discipline that I would be encouraging. Does that make sense? Yeah. And And it's still good to get rid of our idols, even if other idols are worse. Right. And I I think too, that there are times where we, we will do this as a means of Mm self-justification when we know that what we're doing is wrong too, that like different than the situation you're describing is another situation where you might have an issue that is idolatry and -hmm. you can compare it to something else to make yourself feel better about it. Absolutely. And that's not right. Yeah. So that's just another way to read this question. I, equally good, I think. And that is very important. Right. Because like, yes, people will accuse you of something or you'll be self-accused about something. And if you can defend yourself by just coming up with something worse that you don't do, mm-hmm. 
then you just need to realize that's what's called a non sequitur. Like has, that has no bearing on the right, question of whether right. or not your idol's an idol. Yeah. And you have to deal with your idol. And if you don't, then it will get worse. I mean, here's the good news. If your idol, you don't want to deal with the idol because it's not bad enough yet, the more excuses you make for it, the yeah. worse it'll get. And before mm-hmm. you know it, you'll have, you know. Um, so, do, so deal with it at whatever level. Whatever level an idol is at when you detect it is the level at which you should deal with it. Right. You know, when it comes to something like having an idol, like having a clean house, the idolatry of that is relative to what you do to others in order to maintain it. Mm-hmm. Right. So like my mom was, was an Italian immigrant. And part of that is like keeping the plastic on the furniture and having right. everything perfectly clean. Right. Because part of how Italians survived both in Italy and as immigrants was by living on less than everybody else. Yeah. Right. And so it's one of the reasons they were them and the Irish, them and the Irish were hated so much is because they were willing to take lower wages because they would just live on less. Mm-hmm. And it was probably because they took really, really good care of their stuff. And so when my mom, when I grew up at my mom's house, I mean, she just, she was beside herself trying to keep things clean and it really right. made things terrible for her and for us. And so that was, that would have been, I would say an idol for her and it did a lot of damage. It wasn't a nice thing. Mm-hmm. And it, it made us feel like guests, like we didn't belong in our own house, right? you know? Um, but at the same time, like being a slob is also an idol, right? Like right. not taking care of your things and, mm-hmm. and making other people feel unwelcome in their own house. Like mm-hmm. my kids, the way they treat my house. For <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so the, the issue with the idol is how it affects you in relationship to how you engage in how you treat others and your other duties within your realm of stewardship. And so therefore, um, that's what you have to look at. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, you need to repent of that idol, you know, and it, part of the problem with having a clean house is, is that whether or not you can achieve it is very much relative to your power relative to the other people who are there and what you're willing to do. And Sometimes it's a, it's a pyrrhic victory to get a clean house, mm-hmm. you know? All right, let's move on to the next question. This person writes, can you elaborate on the weight of the detestable? So I understand it from the human perspective, but from God's perspective, what is the hierarchy of the weighty and trivial, detestable and admirable? Additionally, isn't a sin a sin with no sense of level? I can't remember where else I've gone on rants relative to isn't a sin a sin. So both of these questions are kind of like yes, buts or yes, ands. So yes, a sin is a sin in that every sin is a sin, Mm -hmm. right? In that sense, a sin is a sin. That doesn't mean that every sin is um, equally, has has an equal sized penalty or equatable amount of guilt, Yeah. right? So yes, if you sin, you're guilty no matter what the sin is, mm-hmm. every sin is in itself unforgivable in the sense that you have no capacity to purchase your forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Right. So there are ways in which all sins are the same. The problem is, is that like if you tell a non-Christian, yes, raping a child and being inconsiderate in an exchange with your spouse are both sins because they're both acts of direct selfishness. Right. Right. And not giving the other person their due, therefore an injustice, therefore a sin. If you say that person, those are the same in God's eyes. Right. Meaning like in intensity or like they're going to, they're going to hate your whole religion and they kind of should, Yeah, you know, because those aren't the same thing. And so there are places in the Bible that, that demonstrate that God will treat some acts more severely than others Mm -hmm. in the old Testament. Different sins have different penalties. 
So sins, um, there's some sins that, that carry the death penalty, some sins that carried an, a penalty of exile, and some just required a certain kind of sacrifice. It was really simple. And so even within the sacrificial system, we can see that God has different gradients of penalty. Does that make sense? So you have to distinguish between what ways sins are the same and which, which ways they're not. Does that make right. sense? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, they all alienate us from God. They are all offenses to God. They all incur guilt. That guilt cannot be alleviated by our own works. Mm-hmm. That's all true of all sins. Yeah. But the intensity of each sin is different. Um, relative to the weight of the detestable, I think the biggest issue is, again, this isn't so much a, a moral philosophy issue as it is a, um, a psychology issue. Like, the, it's not so much like, how much is this bad? The issue is, is, is what we do as human beings is we we treat the detestable as though it's trivial. Right. And anything that is detestable is also weighty. Now, there is a variation like the graph I made on Sunday, like that you can argue there's a variation between like how weighty something is and how trivial it is mm-hmm. and how detestable and how, how um, admirable. admirable it is. But like in one sense, the biggest issue is we tend to treat the detestable as though it was trivial. So you could think of that like, um, y graph, y axis. I guess it would be the up and down axis. Mm-hmm. You could you could say that that's really more about human perception than it is really God. That we we have to see that things that are detestable are also very weighty, and things yeah. that are honorable are very weighty. But it is also true that some things are more trivial than other things. Yeah. And so, um, I think I think the only way you can understand that is through wisdom, is to understand understand scripture better, understand God's character better understand how things impact other things. I mean, part of wisdom is understanding the reason why wisdom works is because it is a deeper understanding of how some things impact other things. And that's a really a big difference supposed to be between adults and children, right? Children can only think like one or two steps into the future. And like adults think multiple steps in the future. And like people we think of as really smart is they see further connections than we thought. And they're like, don't you see how this connects to this, to this? Like, right. I get that from people all yeah. the time where people are yeah. like, I'm like, no, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, then that will make this happen, which will make this happen, which will make... And they'll be like, how do you do that? And I'm just like, I do this all the time. This is my whole life is I work with people who don't have to work with me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So, um, and I've been doing this with thought and philosophy my whole life, right? Like what, what entails what, which entails what? So um, in that sense, once you see what entails what, then you can be begin to see that things that you would consider trivial in the short term actually like entail things that entail things that entail things and, and lead to much right. larger, much more destructive results. And when you realize that, then you can see that what you thought was a trivial thing ends up actually being a pretty consequential thing. Mm-hmm. Like for example, just like not repenting of a small sin. Mm-hmm. That sounds, that sounds really trivial, but you're also making yourself more the kind of person who doesn't repent of trivial sins. Right. Which is a terrible thing that points down the road to damnation. Not very far, just this time. But that's the direction. And if you don't change your course now, where when it's the easiest it will ever be to change course on that road, when will you? Mm-hmm. Right? And the answer is, well, yeah. nowhere unless the pain gets bad enough. Yeah, I remember that there was a very distinct moment. And I remember exactly where I was in my apartment when I came to realize just how calloused I had been to the prompting of the spirit to apologize. And in particular to my husband where I had just, I didn't want to for for long enough that it got to the point where I just, I just was so easily able to ignore the Holy spirit when he convicted me to repent and apologize. Mm -hmm. And I remember the moment where I recognized what had happened. It was all these small things that Mm -hmm. felt like it's not a big deal. Like I don't have to apologize for that. And then it built up into this big wedge in our relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
This next person asks, I understand now that grieving and lamenting in a detestable context is extremely important and a demonstration of love for God. Isn't it also important to continue doing the correct actions in your own life as another demonstration of piety? I love this question so much because I can answer it in one word. Yes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh Yeah. So I should say this. There was this essay by John Piper recently where he's like, I'm going to say some things. And if I don't say other things, it shouldn't be taken from that that I'm saying them. Yeah. Uh I liked that a lot. I read that too. And sometimes you just assume, like, well, you assume that if somebody says that one thing that something else must not be true because they said that thing. Yeah. And I just, I always want to encourage people don't think that about me. This is especially true if people are intelligent and they're, and they're trying to be wise and they're trying to be nuanced. You just can't assume that one thing means another thing. It seems to also be more and more common. I see people adding more and more disclaimers and even just in like their Instagram stories of like, Mm -hmm. now I know this and I know this and blah, 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 but I really like this ice cream. Mm-hmm. Like for things that yeah. seem small and trivial, they add I all these I know there qualifiers. are problems in the world, but right. God help me, I like chocolate. Right, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and I, I don't know where, but yeah, that's this seems to be this thing where everyone yeah. just thinks this is your right. final say on everything. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, that's part of the nature of expositional preaching, right? Like preaching from Ezekiel 8 and 9. I'm right. trying to make the point that God seems to be making in Ezekiel 8 and 9 relative to his message in the wider scriptures. And so I'm, I'm focusing on that, which is the question of yeah. how God detests and sees things not as trivial, right? And that we, in that he sees real faith as people who detest certain things and see that not as trivial. And that in certain contexts, he uses that as his judgment standard of faith. But that's not true in lots of other places in the Bible. In lots of other places in the Bible, obedience or like good works are yeah. the, the litmus test for real faith. You're saved by faith, but it's expressed in other ways. In that context in Ezekiel, it was expressed by detesting that which God detests in such a way as that you sigh and mourn when you experience it and see it and that you realize it's not trivial, but yeah. it is in fact detestable. So in that, that is part of what how faith would express, express itself in the company of wickedness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, this person, this next person asks, do you think God looks at the American church and laments and detests anything in our practices or beliefs. If we have idols in our lives, why have we not been destroyed? I think that's what they meant to say. And then this, this question was separate from a different week, but it's related. What do you think the prophets would rebuke in our church? So I think the answer is, is of course, yes. To the first question, is there anything God sees in the American church that he detests? Absolutely. Um, I'm assuming the person wants to know what those things are. And I'm not sure. I think that we would get the paneled houses talk that Haggai gives the Israelites. Um, Is this a time to be building your little kingdoms for yourself economically rather than giving towards the mission of God that he's giving you the world? I think that there's, I think that there's a lot of generosity in the Christian faith, but, um, but I mean, you know, the average evangelical Christian gives about 2.5% of their income or something like that. And there's so much that can be done for the gospel or for the poor that would not be through the government. Mm-hmm. And that would be in the name of Christ if we were more generous and we are the richest people ever in the history of the world. And so I, I think that he, he probably would say something about our materialism. I think he'd probably say something about our time that we seem to care more about the things we have and maintaining them and keeping them than about the people who are all around us. Um, I think he would probably say, I think he would probably say something about our political 
um, capture that we seem to think that states save people rather than, you know, like that uh, he might ask us what kingdom we really think we're a citizen of. Yeah. Um, and I think that that has been a danger in America for, if for a lot of good reasons, um, because people who have seen good things in the United States mm-hmm. and it's, it's experiment as a, what the founding fathers called and it was a new, new order, order secularum, the, a new order for the ages or something like that. That looked like the, America was trying to experiment in something different and that that was good. Uh, th- there's a lot of loyalty. A lot of people have felt to that idea of America that they felt like they, we had, we had done a better job than most other countries in the history of the world. Right. Um, but I think it's very easy to, when, especially when countries are doing well to have an idolatrous relationship with them. Um, that'll be interesting as we get into later chapters in Ezekiel as well. mm -hmm. I hadn't thought about that before, but yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of choice words Ezekiel has for some of the great nations, right? Right. And specifically for God's people choosing to pledge their allegiance there rather than to him. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That's definitely, um, but I, 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 frankly, there are other things. I think that there are like large injustices. See part, when you read the old Testament and he talks about injustices, like devouring widows homes and stuff like that. I always wonder like at what level does he consider that something he would just rebuke a whole nation for? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and is it as bad now as it was then? Yeah. So I wonder if, cause like we do do devour some widows homes. I'm sure like there are things that we do with the poor that doesn't treat them fairly. Right. I think that there's things that we do for people who are coming out of prison where we don't really treat them fairly. It meaning, meaning I don't mean treat them fairly in this, in the libertarian sense. I just mean like, are we, are, do they, are they existing within the order of our society in such a way as that we can reasonably expect them in the state that they're in to succeed? Can they, through the exertion of their own responsibility, succeed? And, or is, have we put the bar too high for them, so mm-hmm. to speak, right? And I think that in those cases, I think there are places where God would rebuke us. Um, but I don't know exactly what they are. That's the struggle for me is like, yeah. Um, I mean, I have a really hard time believing that God doesn't think that the regime of abortion is an enormous scourge in the American society. Actually, I mean, and and our capacity for um, exporting the idolatry of abortion to other countries all over the world to the tunes of millions and millions and millions and millions of human children, um, that I think he would see as a profound abomination. I don't know of another one that would come close. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but I do think that I wonder if he would say something about racism in America if he had a if God spoke with a prophetic voice like he would in the Old Testament and say like something unique about us is this biracial race problem America created because of the slavery system and how that is durable and problematic in a way that is is truly different than some other places even though every place has had very profound racism yeah yeah you know I wonder if he'd say the same thing to the Han Chinese he's like you know same you guys and white Americans I I don't I don't even know I. My understanding is that um, racism in China is much more profound and pervasive and difficult and limiting and than in America. But I don't know. I mean, that's very, these, some yeah. of these things are very hard to study. So, uh, so the, the answer is yes. I mean, I think if, if we were in the first chapters of Revelation and there was a letter from the angel to the churches in America, I fear that that letter would be long. <laughs> It'd have a number of things in it. Yes. Uh, so let me answer that relative to our church this way. When we went on an executive retreat a, a while ago, we had like just a day away. It was myself, Nicole, Pastor Mike, um, Aaron Hesse, and Brandon, and Ellis. Brandon Ellis. And we were going through, we were looking at the state of the church. 
And one of the things we did this exercise for maybe 35 minutes where I said, okay, let's answer the Ezekiel question, which is this. The elders go and sit down and ask Ezekiel for a word from the Lord. And, Eze- and the Lord says to Ezekiel, I'm not giving you one. You won't do what I've told you to do. Mm-hmm. And then I said, what are those things? That if we went, if we went and asked the Lord for a word from him and he answered like this, I'm not giving you one. You need to do what I told you to do. What are the things that he would say that about that he told us to do that we just aren't doing? And we came up with a list of like eight things, you know? And so, um, and some of them feel like they're vague or big, like we don't love very well. Right. Or um, High Point has never in my time here been a church where people seem to really call on God. Mm-hmm. Like as a being who is there, who who his intervention because we call on him and the dynamic he's created there with prayer and worship that he will act in our life is sort of rooted in this relationship of us calling on him and him acting in time and space. Um, we, we seem to be the sort of people who believe that if we, we faithfully obey the Lord, he will naturally work in his providence, coordinating with us so as to move in our lives. Mm-hmm. But this action of like calling out to the unseen God in prayer yeah. and to, um, thank and adore the unseen God in worship is something we're at best mediocre about, mm-hmm. right? And that's not a critical part of our life. So I, I think there's something like that. And we're and as a staff, we're trying to work through those, yeah, and try to figure out how we can be more fully His, such that He maybe He would say, "You're doing a great job." But I, I, th- I still think it's important to recognize that in the letters in Revelation, He says to them, "They're doing a great job." There's, there's like there's some things you guys are doing that you're doing great, yeah. But then He also says, "You have this fault." And then in most of the letters, He says, "If you don't do something about this fault." You're doomed. And that always kind of terrifies me. That church can be doing so well and he can praise them and then say, you have this fault. And if you don't do something about this fault, you're doomed. Right. And so that's why I, you know, I, that's the attitude I have towards the church. So I'm like, you know, this is all great that we're right. doing all this stuff. That's great. But I'm always looking for that thing. Yeah. What, what, what is it? How, where are we lying to ourselves mm-hmm. and indulging ourselves in such a way as to not really obey God? Which, because I think, I mean, that's related to the, one of the first questions that over time, something that may seem small, like it grows Mm -hmm. and it can affect a trajectory and it can infect like yeast and bread, you know? Yeah. So, okay. This next question, you addressed this at the end of first service. The question is, what would you say to the 25 year old who grew up in the church, but has stopped attending because they have LGBTQ friends and they think the church is not welcoming and caring to this community? The way I answer the question is a 25 year old who is LGBTQ. But this is actually more common, which is where the 25 year old grew up at the church and he stopped becoming because he has LGBTQ friends and feels as though we're not welcoming to LGBTQ people. And I think that that is. So, on one level, I really sympathize with people like that. Because there are lots of ways in which the church as a whole or lots of individual churches are not very welcoming to all kinds of people. Because people, human beings, I don't know if this is a newsflash to people, but human beings are not naturally very welcoming creatures. Yeah. And we like routines. We don't like things changed. And, and so diversity of, of various kinds are, is very difficult for us to cope with. Um, and so it's true that churches have not been very welcoming to LGBTQ people. Especially This is especially true when... Um, the natural expression of something is something that we do believe biblically and know based on God's revelation is a sin. Like it's wrong. And it's a, um, a kind of, um, distortion of the way he's created humanity to be. However, 
one of one of the things I think is sort of shallow about this sort of approach, and it's common among people with I think fairly shallow faith, is that it it doesn't reason in the right order. It it starts with what you want, and then it assumes that that's what's true and right in reality. And I think that's the wrong way to go about thinking. I think you start with what's true about reality, and then you look at what you think you want to happen, and then given reality. How do you move towards what you want to happen, Mm -hmm. right? So if God is real and if Jesus is his Christ and if the church you're associated with doesn't seem to be very welcoming to LGBTQ people, the solution to that is not to quit the church or quit God, right? If Jesus is the Christ, he's the Christ. And so one, make sure that your ethics of, of sexuality is correct and make sure you understand that you are viewing your LGBTQ friends with the mind of Christ, that they're totally valuable in the mind of God, that they bear the image of God himself and all of that, that everyone's sexuality is broken, right? Theirs and yours. Mm -hmm. It expresses itself differently. We're all to conform ourselves to the way of Christ in everything, including our sexual morality. Sexual morality is not an ancillary part of godliness, but a primary and central part of godliness. So it's not like you can be like, well, I'm a, I follow Jesus, but sexuality doesn't matter. Right, recognize that there's all kinds of profligacy in many ways, right? And then recognize that um, you have, then have to relate to that person in the complexity of those realities, right? Then secondly, you turn to the church, right? And the church is the body of the living Christ filled with fleshly human beings who are broken and blah, 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 right? And then you realize that you live in the complexity of the relationship between those two things together. And that's the way the world is right now. And you have to deal with that. And most people just will not accept the complexity of it. And so they make a self-righteous judgment that is not based on good thinking. And they just go, well, you know, the church is mean. And it, that's just a very juvenile way to think. And um, I know why they do it. I, I know that I am prone to breeze in that way and things, I'm sure. But um, one of the things that's marked my life differently than some of my peers is that I start with whether or not I believe Jesus is the Christ. Right. And whether or not he has spoken and shown himself. And then I go from what he has said and shown and done. And then I move towards how I deal with the problems that I see in the world. So I have always believed that the church has not been super optimal in how it's related to LGBTQ people. Um, But at the same time, because I believe Jesus understands human sexuality, I also think that the gay rights movement has been very, very, very suboptimal in how it's related to LGBTQ people, just in the complete opposite way. Mm -hmm. And so if I can see through... If I can see through the nonsense that the LGBTQ movement has actually treated LGBTQ people correctly, right? It's fought for their dignity in a certain kind of way that I think is very laudable, but it's also not understood humanity in a way that is very critical. And because they failed in that way, I think they've incredibly failed LGBTQ people without knowing it. And the church has done literally the opposite. It's understood something critical about the anthropology of LGBTQ yeah. people in sexuality, and it is not seen and understood the fundamental nature of their dignity as humanity right. um, and, and fought for that yeah. in a way that was helpful to them that they really did need in American culture. And so what I think God wants us to do is to take the insight about fighting for their dignity that the LGBTQ movements have pushed for like shear it of all the nonsense of pride and arrogance and the rejection of sexual normativity between the complementary nature of men and women and so on and and keep, keep that fighting for their dignity but then add in the anthropological truths revealed by Christ in relationship to our sexuality to come up with something really rich and truthful and then try to move the church to really 
live in that way. And I think that would be maturity. That would be truth. That would be grace, grace, graciousness. Mm -hmm. And that would be, that would be a form of love. And, um, that 25 year old needs to grow up spiritually speaking and enter into the complexity of the image of God in a sin cursed world and begin to understand the complexity when he deals with, and when that person realizes how complex that situation is for him, not only will that person realize they need the grace of God and the help of Christ and that they've been arrogant and that they need Jesus. And so all of that, they'll also begin to recognize that to judge God in these things, when your own position is so complicated, you have no idea what to do to know that in God's position as the sovereign one, there are many catch 22s that he can't undo just because he's God. And that the way he's governing the world isn't faultable from our perspective because we could never, we could never have that clear judgment about him. So I think it would rehabilitate their view of God, rehabilitate their view of LGBTQ people, rehabilitate their view of themselves, rehabilitate their view of the gospel and the church, right? And then finally, it would rehabilitate their view of Christ because why does why does God Himself, in the person of the Son, made made the man Jesus? die on the cross? And the answer is, is because the problems of the world are unreconcilable and only the crucifixion of God himself, giving himself freely to be killed in sacrifice can begin to split the Gordian knots of the, of the divisions of the world. And that therefore, and that is a life he's called to lead. And any, anybody who does not think they're called to lead the life of the cross isn't fit to be a Christian. They can't have, they don't have faith and they can't be Christ's disciple. And, um, that is the hard and terrifying truth of of knowing Jesus. And, and this is the LGBTQ question. It's just, it's a protracted one because it's really in our face constantly, but it's just every, every moral question in the whole world is like that. Mm -hmm. All right. A few weeks ago, you preached out of the idea from Ezekiel of being a watchman. So, uh, there are a couple of questions related to that. How do you know if it's your responsibility to be a watchman in a situation? For example, with friends, when they aren't in your stewardship, but you may have influence. Or another example, social media can make us feel closer or connected to friends, even if we've lost touch with them. Do we still have responsibility to those old, close friends? I would probably use a different metaphor for friendship than watchmen. Mm -hmm. Um, how, uh, however, um, yeah, I think social media is a difficult thing because it allows you to know about stuff without the context of relationship. Yeah. And that makes it really weird to be like, Hey, saw that you're divorcing your wife and abandoning your family, you know? Right. I have definitely. And everybody on Facebook who said anything is like cheering for you. Right. I've wrestled with that personally, that mm -hmm. like relationships that used to be very close that for fine reasons, usually just proximity mm -hmm. have navigated away from one another. And I've mm -hmm. recognized, I don't think I'm in that place anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in most cases, I do not think so. social media is a relevant media by which to engage in watchmanship. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean you shouldn't say anything to someone. It just means that a watchman is somebody who has direct and meaningful stewardship over a city relative to being a watchman. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think, I don't think that that's every relationship. Yeah. But I do think that there are places where you, you are the, like, for example, if one of the things to ask yourself is, am, if not me, then who? Mm 
Like, Mm -hmm. is there anybody else that's in this role? And if the answer is no, then it may very well be that that is you. Um, like if you're something, something wrong with your kid <laughs> and somebody, you know, yeah. then like, no, that's you. When it comes to friendships like that, I don't, and they're not close ones and you're not involved in their life regularly, then no. I mean, I'm literally going to have one of these interactions today and yeah. I'm not this person's watchman. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yet, um, because of the way they interacted in a relationship that I introduced them to, I feel responsible. And so I'm going to meet with them and try to find out what the heck's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to approach it as I'm really concerned about you. I'm concerned about that person because I'm concerned about how they treated this person I sent to them. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to start with them and find out what's going on because I'm going to try to get in there and act like a friend, but that's not the same. That's not the same as being a watchman. I don't think, um, so yeah, I guess in this case I might use a different metaphor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you brought up parenting and children. So here's, this is actually a related question. As a parent of adult children, how do you balance being the bad cop when needed with being the loving parent? Um, I don't know if that person is making a joke referring to me as the adult, a parent of adult children because I have an 18 year old. (laughs) Um, But I, I think that if you consider your child an adult child, truly, then what that means is, is that you actually aren't in the stewardship of watchmen anymore in the same way. Yeah. Um, and they are supposed to sort of figure out their own life and honoring you means something different than it did. Mm-hmm. So that I think I don't, I wouldn't say that you're in a, tr- a, a, a straightforwardly peer relationship, but it's much closer to that, I would think. And so I think that, um, you know, whenever I've said this a few times, whenever anybody asks me the questions, how do you balance blank yeah. and blank? Uh-huh. I mean, the answer is I can't tell you on yeah. a podcast. <laughs> like I would have to sit down and talk about a particular issue yeah. and then say, how would we balance this? And mm, so I can't really answer how you do that. I, I think the answer is you, you, your, your own prudence and wisdom has to dictate right. when to, when to say, Hey, are you sure about this? And when to say, I'm so proud of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think sometimes it's good to survey the history of your parenting. So for me, like I have an adult child, she's 18 and I survey the history of my parenting and I haven't said enough. I'm, I'm proud of yous. Mm -hmm. So for me, as I try to balance it, I have to overweight the positive to try to be the right kind of parent of an adult child. And I think when I think it's, so so I think that those are, that's the question I would ask myself. I've started with the psychological question of just like what, what do I need to overbalance relative to who I've been? Mm-hmm. And, and therefore how my kid's going to react to me. Cause if you your kid has a negative relationship with you, then playing the bad cops a lot harder, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. All right. A couple more questions. Um, are nominal Christians truly saved? By definition, the answer is no. Right. Cause nominal means in name only. Yeah. So if somebody's a Christian in name only that by definition means not in other ways, i.e. vitally yeah. or truly relative to faith. So a nom- if, if somebody is technically, literally a nominal Christian, the answer is no. Yeah. Now, if somebody's a nominal Christian because somebody else doesn't think that they are, are Christian enough, uh-huh. then maybe. Right. You know? But if I was, if I wanted to know that I was saved, being called a nominal Christian by others would not encourage me. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I, okay. I think that therefore I should clarify that, that, 
So why do I say that when people like, well, but people say like, if you believe that Jesus is Lord and God raised from the dead, you're saved. Like if you confess it and you believe it. And the answer is yes, but the biblical concept of faith is richer than that you said it, right? Or that you were, you really believed it at one particular moment in time as completely as you could in the mental state that you were in, right? Faith in the Bible is like a durable, convictional direction of heart where you lean all the way of your trust onto something and you don't remove it. Mm-hmm. And we are saved with very imperfect faith. But what God God is not asking is is your faith perfect and perfectly reliable? What God asks is, is your faith um vital and that's proven by its durability. So you like you really do believe and you persevere in that belief. Mm-hmm. And that's what that and it and that and it will produce some some amount of good works, and the fact that it's vital, that it's durable, and that it produces some fruit, demonstrates that it's for real. Mm-hmm. And so God doesn't judge you by by those relative to perfection. Like do you like do you have perfect faith? Is it is it is it strong every minute? And do you do all yeah. good works? It's He will judge you on the basis of His own prudential judgment relative to whether your faith was real as opposed to whether it was vital, persevering and producing a fruit and that in a a faith that is those three things is not nominal by definition right okay now the last question is the complexity of solutions a direct reflection of the fall it seems that every quote advancement of man has unintended consequences Yeah. So, okay. So here's how I understand this question Mm -hmm. to say that, okay, Nick, um, solution. So you, you, one of the things I said in the sermon was one of the things that makes our life complex is sins because the minute you sin, you're like off track, right? And you've made a situation more complex by fouling it up. And then other people react to that sin by sinning themselves and actually creates this like devolving, um, like positive reinforcement loop, kind of positive feedback loop where things just kind of get worse and worse. And so like, there's no way to clean it up. Right. But this person says, yeah, but, but also just advancements make things more complicated. Right. Because whenever you change something and you make one thing more advanced, it creates unintended consequences for other things. And I think the answer to that is, is that's true. Um, However, generally speaking, my belief is, is that when you do something in faith and obedience, like you're actually doing something God really told you to do it will have a lot of unintended consequences, but they tend to be more good than bad. And those unintended consequences tend to be very manageable. And the part of the reason for that is, is that you're getting at the heart issue of what would create the problems. So for example, if you, let's say like you just had a ton of pride and you had a relationship with somebody and I was trying to counsel you and I said, okay, you're arguing with this person. Here's what you should do. Just, you just need to stop arguing with them. Right. The problem was not that you were arguing with them, but the problem was your pride. Mm-hmm. Right. What would happen is, is that your pride would come out in like five other ways. Mm-hmm. So the unintended consequences, these five now new ways that there's a problem came from the fact that I dealt with the problem, but I didn't deal with the real problem. Yeah. So if I had dealt with the real problem, said, you know, your problem, Nicole, is, is your pride. and You need to repent and believe the gospel mm-hmm. and know who you really are, know who God really is, know who this other person really is and relate that way. What would happen is I'd not, we would not only fix your problem of arguing, we'd fix four other problems that hadn't even been brought up yet. So we would have the unintended consequences of solving more problems rather than less, mm-hmm. right? If I don't deal with the real problem, I may solve the one problem that I've created now three or four unintended consequences because you pull off the top of the weed and it grows up in three different ways, yeah. right? 
So generally speaking, I would say when we really pursue God with wisdom and obedience, we can engage in true advancement and we will have unintended consequences, but we will either be able to manage those or we will get mostly good unintended consequences. I have found that in godliness in my own life. Whenever I deal with the real root of sin and I really grow, it makes five things better and three of them I never would have, didn't even know were bad. Mm-hmm. And when I try to manage a sin, I like fix up two things and four things go bad. Yeah. So, and I think this is definitely, psychologists talk about this relative to um, family systems and you can apply this to public policy that like when people get really reactive about a problem and then they want the anxiety to go away. And so they go, well, we'll make the anxiety go away. And they actually choose like a quick fix that will just make them feel less anxious rather than dealing with the real problem that would be very painful. What happens is, is that they accommodate to the least mature person and then they do the quick fix. And then like that just ends up making it worse mm-hmm. and nothing gets fixed. And then everybody doesn't think things can be fixed and everything is just more mucked up. Whereas if you stop and you like do this really painful thing Mm -hmm. to really fix the problem, not only does that actually fix that problem, but it makes people more open to fixing problems. It makes everybody else respond more maturely to other situations and other things that they would be reactive to and so on. Public policy is like this. When people get really angry about something, we need to change this. And they just come with a policy that's really based on people's anger. They choose a quick fix rather than a deep solution. And they're just put, they're just multiplying their pain by putting it off rather than facing it acutely. So, um, Generally speaking, I think, this isn't always true about everything, but generally speaking, I tend to think that unintended consequences are much less and positive unintended consequences are much greater when you deal with the root of the matter morally and you create real health because of your willingness to face the acute pain of what it takes to really grow. (laughs) And things generally spiral and get worse and you have worse unintended consequences when you do the opposite and choose the quick fix instead of something else. Relative to advancements technologically, I think that when people are in a state of good a good economic balance of cooperation and competition, that advancements can be energizing rather than destructive. They do create dislocation. That is true. But when people are doing it in goodwill and stuff like, like for example, like a lot of stuff has gone down economically. It's been very destructive. And yet the general, the general wealth of even the poorest American, for example, has risen dramatically over the last hundred years. And so sometimes with advancements, even when the, the worst of other things is happening, you still are further ahead than you were. Yeah. Right. So, um, yeah, so I think that, I think that it is true. Advancements can create problems, but we need to keep our eye on the ball of like what really matters, which is whether or not you're dealing with a real issue so that you get good unintended consequences or whether or not you aren't and you get more bad unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. All right. We made it through all of them. Before we wrap up, I do just want to say that the, these particular episodes, it's a lot of information, a lot of like, it could just be a lot of knowledge, but the, the goal and the intention of this is not just for you to have more knowledge, but that these would help you to actually apply the gospel to your life, Mm -hmm. that you would walk in obedience to God and in applying his truths to your actual relationships, to your real situations, and that it would change you and transform you. And so that's our prayer that this would be a part of that, just one part of that. Yeah. And I, I, I just, we can't emphasize enough that like the logic of all these answers only works if Jesus is king Mm -hmm. and you realize that he is wise and loving and that he cares about the people you're trying to defend and he cares about you and he wants us to experience blessing, which isn't like some cheap thing. Christians get non-Christians don't. It's really the flourishing that God has 
built into the world and is bringing about through his spirit. And if you, if you start at that place of real piety and faith and trust in him, then you can apply some of the stuff I tried to give in, in the terms of the shape of wisdom to these questions and you'll be motivated to do it. And you mm-hmm. really can stick with it and do the hard thing. And if you, that faith isn't there, if you don't trust God in doing it, you won't step out in the danger of faith, then it, you can't ever do it. Cause it's always terrifying to do the acutely painful, hard thing yeah. for the real good, <laughs> as opposed to choosing the quick fix that puts off the solution to other people. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you like this episode, rate us, review us on your favorite podcast platform, and also share this episode with a friend. That is the best way that we have to reach new listeners. If you have an idea for a question that you want us to answer on the podcast or just a general podcast topic, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org and we'll do our best to fit it in. Also, if you'd like to find more episodes of the podcast, you can do so by going to highpointchurch.org slash podcast, or else we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, other apps like that. So until next time, thanks for joining us for this episode of Engage and Equip.